Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Father, I thank you for life. I thank you for life now. I thank you for life forever. Father, thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves, but that you, in your mercy and in your strength, sent your only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have life forever. Father, we trust in his grace and in the mercy that we have through him, through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, that he is at the right hand, interceding for us even right now. Father, praying for us. Father, would you send your spirit to do work in our hearts, to open the eyes in the deep places of our soul that we might know the truth of your word and the truth of your goodness. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in 1 Timothy. If you've got your Bibles, you might turn there. I also want to let you know, I mentioned this a little bit ago, but we've got a couple resources we're going to make available to you. And on the table right out here by the door, I believe we have um, some journals. They may be gone. We had a limited number of these available. These are just journals for you to go. And as you study 1 Timothy, one of our themes for this year for us as a people was you can understand the Bible. We really believe that God changes lives through his word, that he has revealed himself in a written word called the Old Testament, New Testament, and we wanted to encourage you in that. And so we've kind of this year made that a focus of ours for the year. And as we jump into 1 Timothy, we're going to be in 1 Timothy all fall. And so we've got some journals available if you want to take that, and you can just um, use that during the week as you do a study. And then we've got a study guide, kind of an introduction to the book of 1 Timothy that we've written and we've printed and want to give those to you as well. You can actually download a PDF online uh, if, if you'd prefer to have it on your screen somewhere. But you can grab one of these on your way out or grab those just a little bit later. And really just got you some, got some great information in here about 1 Timothy, giving you some background, some purpose, some other things to study, some other resources and things you might need, as well as some space for you to take notes as we start to study that. So you might stick it in your Bible, take notes through the series, and um, want to encourage you, we really want you to own the book of 1 Timothy this year. And so part of that means we're going to walk verse by verse through the book uh, and, and really try to put that in your hands so that at the end of the semester, uh, you're going to be talking about that. If you're in a small group, you're going to be looking at 1 Timothy as well. And so I want to just encourage you, if you miss a week, and go back and grab the podcast, stay in the game, and let's work through this together as we dive into to the Word of God. So let me start off. We're going to read just a few verses and really do some overview kind of stuff today as we kick off this book. But let me start off and just read the first section here in 1 Timothy. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. 
The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either, either what they were saying or the things about which they make con- confident assertions. So Paul starts off in the book, and he starts off and he's writing it, and you notice that it's a personal letter. It's Paul, an apostle, one who's ordained by God and called by God to be a pioneer of the faith, and one of those that launched out and helped start the church, uh, the, the church and, and really launched really in the Gentile world. Many, many churches, planted churches, would pop into a place, help establish a church, put someone in charge, and he'd move on. And Timothy is one of those that was kind of under his charge. He calls him my true child in the faith. He was uh, considered himself a spiritual father to this one named Timothy. But you notice in verse three, he says, I urged you in this personal letter, Timothy, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And he kind of comes out swinging from the get-go, doesn't he? I mean, there's, you're not, he's not holding back from the very beginning. This is someone he's, he's traveled with, someone he knows well, someone he has a lot of life experience with. Timothy had accompanied Paul on many of his missionary journeys. He'd been there, he'd moved back and forth. Paul had sent him on, given him different tasks and things which he had gone out to be and been instructed to do. And in the midst of that kind of coming and going, Timothy is, uh, is, is someone that Paul began to trust. And Paul says, look, you're a true child of the faith. Your, your, your faith is real, and I trust you like I would trust my own. But he says, I urged you to remain at Ephesus. And uh, when Paul got this letter and he was reading that, I can almost guarantee you the first thing Paul thought was, yeah, thanks a lot for that. Like, I really appreciate that. Because Ephesus was kind of a mess. Honestly, it was, it was kind of like, hey, you know what? I got a new assignment for you. You get to be captain of the Titanic. You know, and it's just like, get, you know, get ready to go. And so Timothy, when Paul goes, you know, and I, I left, I was going on someplace else and I urged you to stay at Ephesus. Uh, Timothy was probably going, yeah, appreciate that, Paul. Urged though, it's an interesting word. It's, it's a really strong exhortation. In fact, when he says urged, it really means pleaded or demanded. It almost begged him to stay. And it's saying remain, he could have used a word that was a little less intense, but he actually used a word purposefully that had this kind of intensity to it that said, continue remaining, meaning go there and stay there and don't go anywhere else because I need you there. And so Paul is urging him to do that. And you notice the reason why. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Charge is, it's a command, it's an order. He says, I want you to stay there and order people not to teach anything different than the doctrine which, I ta- which I've taught. Friends, what we're going to see in 1 Timothy is that inevitably Christian faith is going to lead us into some tension and into some conflict with some of the ideas in the world in which we find ourselves. That has been the norm from beginning to now. And that will always be the case. There's always going to be some places where our faith begins to rub up against our society. In fact, in any society, there's accepted kind of ways of living, accepted ways of life, accepted norms and viewpoints and morals and ethics and approaches to things. And inevitably, whenever our society establishes those norms, the gospel, there's going to be places where whenever you come with the truth of God's word, there's places where it's actually going to connect and intersect with our society and in places where there's some overlap. 
but there's also some places where it's going to contradict and it's going to be going to cut through some of our society and there's going to be some kind of an edge to it or a bit of a cutting to it. In fact, in, in our world, we talk about this being a multicultural or pluralistic society. And in a pluralistic society, the kind of foundation of that is that there's a free exchange of ideas, right? That there's lots of viewpoints and lots of ideas and there's a pluralistic uh, ability for, for, for a whole lot of different people to express themselves in different ways. And that's a foundation or a bedrock of our current culture and the place in which we find ourselves. But what you see in First Timothy is within the church, at least on some matters, there is no free exchange of ideas. At least on some matters that we're called to actually be dogmatic. He says, I urge you to charge them, to order them not to teach a different doctrine. And so there's something he says, on these matters, we can't bend. Now, when I say dogma or dogmatic, uh, that's really always got a negative connotation to it, doesn't it? So what I'm not saying is that we need to be harsh or angry or unreasonable or belittling, but we need to have a strength and a firmness to our convictions that aren't just kind of fluctuating with the wind but we need to have some strength about us. And inevitably, that is what Paul is going to be pushing, uh, pushing Timothy to, to reinforce. Now, part of what that means is we're going to disagree with some of our friends. We're going to disagree with some of our leaders. We're going to disagree with some of the ideas we hear uh, coming through our world. And so there's going to be some places where those places, where, where, our script, where the scriptures are going to contradict those things. In fact, Paul, it's interesting in this passage though, Paul is talking to Timothy, he says that there are some of those uh, who are saying things and it says about which they make confident assertions. See, the, the problem is not just that we have some ideas that we believe strongly, but that there's other people who have differing ideas and they're very confident about their assertions too. And so when you've got two people that are confident about differing ideas, there's gonna be some conflict. And this is the, the beginning of Paul, Paul's letter to Timothy and what he says. And really, this is a common concern, not just in Timothy, but throughout the Bible. When you read, you see this thing over and over. Let me just read a few verses. Paul later is gonna warn Timothy that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. So he's saying there's, there's people because they, they're gonna find someone who will whisper in their ears the good things that they wanna hear, and it's going to reinforce their own passions, their own desires, and it's gonna lead them away from the truth because they no longer want to listen to the truth. He warns them also about irrelevant controversies. He says there's a, a tendency in some of these teachers to kind of speculate and stir things up and, and, and delve into the mysterious and, and push the boundaries and some stuff with deceptive ideas. They, they love to argue and present something that's kind of on the edge or at the forefront. And you see that theme that runs through here. Uh, another place, Paul says that they have a form of godliness but deny its power, meaning they look really good in some ways but they've somehow gutted the heart of the thing so that there's not really any strength or power to it anymore, even though it looks good on the outside, which makes sense because 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. See, Satan doesn't come and go, hey, here I am with a false idea. Let me show you what this is. He comes in and disguises it as something that looks really beautiful and really good. And it's something that's meant to be deceptive. Another place, in fact, and Jesus says, um, 
uh, actually, before I get there, let me, go to, uh, let me read that whole verse on 2 Corinthians. It says, For such men will be false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Um, so that's Paul. But Jesus said something similar. Jesus said, Satan is a liar. In fact, he said, you, he's talking to some false teachers that he confronted personally. And he said, you, you're, uh, he says, you are of your father, the devil. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. There's a deception. There's something that's mentally, that, 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 that Satan intentionally is leading astray. Jesus also says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. See, there's a, a sneakiness. There's a secrecy oftentimes to false ideas that are intended to lead us astray, but they're wolves that are there to ultimately devour us and cause us great pain. Second Peter says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So, uh, this book is not going to be like positive, positive, encouraging Christian pop radio, right? I mean, this book's a little bit more in your face. That's why we call the series The Good Fight, because twice in the book, he talks about the good fight. And in 2 Timothy, he talks about the good fight as well. Here, he also talks about waging the good warfare, because there's a battle that's going on. And there's something that's real at stake. You notice the consequences it gave here is that this will be destructive to those who are caught in its wake. So friends, here's what I want you to know as we start to think about some of these things and talk about dogma. Our dogma is not so much about being right as our dogma is about being life. We want, to, we, want to, we want to connect you to the source of true life and it's about us guarding the way of human flourishing and goodness because we want to connect you with the God of all goodness and the God who does give life and the God who gives every good gift that there is to give to his children. And so we want to guard that. We want to watch over it. So ultimately, as you think about this series, and it's interesting, I was talking to someone this week, and uh, several of you have been reading ahead and kind of reading through the book as we're getting ready for the series. And I was talking to one of you this week, and, and, and the, this person said, you know, I was reading through this, and I was thinking about your sermons and everything you did. And they said, I got to be honest, there were a couple of times I winced. Like I got to a certain place in First Timothy, and I saw what we're going to have to talk about, and I went... Yeah, another person said, I was reading through First Timothy, and first one, I thought, oh, this is going to get interesting. First two, uh, or chapter two, I just started praying for you, because I just thought you were in trouble. Um, so we're going to have some fun in this book. We're going to look at some controversial stuff. We're going to look at some interesting stuff. Um, but, but what makes it so tough? I think sometimes in First Timothy, we're going to look at some topics or some questions like, what is the church? Uh, what is the church supposed to be about? What are, uh, what's a pastor? What are elders? What are deacons? How, are they the same? Are they different? Are they, how do they relate? What's the role of women in a church? What's the church's approach to a lost world? What dangers exist for us? What, why is doctrine so important and belief and, and kind of what we hold on to so important for the everyday person? And all those things are going to be discussed in here. We're going to see some of that. But Here's my concern as I walk through this week is I, as, as I read through those questions, part of my concern is that you don't really care about any of those things. The, the, the most people in the world, for many of us, we don't feel like our life is directly connected to the church. Church is a place we go occasionally and we get some ideas and maybe we grab some helpful tips, but we don't feel like life and death 
rests and hinges on this thing called the church. And so maybe it don't, doesn't feel as important to you as it, as it really ought to. But, so before we kind of work through this book, and we're going we're gonna to work through the whole book through the fall, before we get there, I want to take some time today and a little bit next week and just lay the groundwork for you and maybe just help you understand why this feels difficult in our day to, to really value and see that. And the reality is in the current American church, there's almost no ecclesiology at all. And by ecclesiology, I mean the study of the church, a belief about what God has ordained as the church. There's almost no understanding of that at all in our world. It's not something we typically talk about or do. In fact, many church leaders have kind of, have kind of shelved ecclesiological depth and taken on more business strategies and marketing strategies in order to figure out how to build this. And so we've done a better job oftentimes of building buildings than we have at building disciples. But when we see what Timothy or what Paul is calling Timothy to do and what the church is meant to do, I think we're going to see something a little bit different than that. In fact, you know, in a lot of Christian circles, it's become really commonplace to kind of bash the church, kind of beat up on it, kind of look down on it. But man, when you look at the scriptures, you see it nothing but elevated. It's our lifeblood. It's our family. It's the thing that it's the place where we meet the gospel, where God works to train us up and nurture us to a place of spiritual health and conviction that sustains us in all the waves and winds of life. And so we want to be those who trust the church and who run after it. In fact, what we're going to see is there's a wonderful connection in the church really between kind of passion and plans on one hand, there's mystery, and then there's management on another hand. There's kind of the, the fire of God and, and, and the Holy Spirit on one hand, and then there's this, this firmness of, of conviction and, and the ways we operate on another hand. And all those things come together to produce something that gives us life. And so, man, I want to encourage you, if you've given up on church or maybe dismissed its importance, I, I hope in this series that and you just develop a love for the church that you never even realized you needed but you didn't realize the depth and richness that God had intended it to be. So let me jump in and think through a couple of things as we look at this letter. Remember, this is a personal letter. It's a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. And so I want to think about that relationship a little bit because one of the, one of the things you see throughout their relationship is Timothy was probably kind of an emotional guy in some ways. He, he oftentimes struggled with timidity. He's a guy that he, maybe you can relate to him that he, he knew he was called to, to be a leader, but there were times where he just thought, man, I don't know if I'm doing this right or I don't know if I've got the strength to do this. And so he tended to shy back and Paul's always pushing him back forward and going, no, don't shy back, be strong, go get them, hold fast, you can do this. And he's kind of giving him a pep talk. And really this is a letter that Paul had probably been with Timothy and he'd left and sent a letter pretty quickly to him just going, man, you can do this with God's help and is giving him some encouragement and exhortation and kind of a pep talk. But there's a big theme here of courage. And the reason is Paul knew that Timothy was going to need a deep reservoir of courage to face all the trials that he was going to face as a leader leading this church in this city called Ephesus. And now Paul, as he left, was handing the leadership off to Timothy. And he knew Timothy couldn't do this on his own, but was going to need a strength bigger than his, than his own strength in order to do this. Friends, leadership is hard. Anytime you're stepping into leadership, anytime you're starting a new venture, anytime you're stepping into a new kind of mantle of responsibility, there's risk that goes with that. And there's hardship that goes with that. And you're going to feel that. And you see that in the scriptures all the time. In fact, 
I was thinking about this kind of Paul handing off the leadership. Paul had actually pastored this church in Ephesus for about three years or been there about three years at an earlier time. And so Paul knew what was going on in this place. And he's taking this younger man, Timothy, and saying, hey, I'm, I'm entrusting this to you. And it reminded me of Moses and Joshua. When Moses had taken the people kind of out of Egypt and they'd wandered around for 40 years and he didn't get to go in the promised land because some of the hardship there. And Moses had definitely had his own fair share of difficulties in leadership. And Moses is handing off responsibility to the people, to Joshua, who's gonna lead them into the promised land. And there's this whole charge in Joshua chapter one where he just says, be strong and courageous. Do not veer to the right or to the left. But again, I'm gonna tell you, be strong and courageous because he knew he was gonna have to be strong and courageous to be able to lead these people into a spiritual place. Now, why was Timothy gonna, what was gonna be so hard? Well, the first thing we're gonna see is that there were pressures from within the church. There were false teachers from within their ranks who were kind of rising up and beginning to spread some dissension. They were speculating. They were creating tensions and arguments and fighting over over needless matters. Um, Any of you ever been in a church? You know that happens, right? I mean, I've seen churches fight over the color of the carpet. I've seen one time I just, you, you see all this just silliness. And you know, one time I, we've been away for a long time and came not to the church, another church, but I came back and I'd grown a beard for the first time. And I walked in and one lady was like, that looks good. You should never shave that. Another lady was like, I hate that. You need to shave that right away. And I was like, thank you for your opinion. And I appreciate that, right? Like we can get sidetracked on so much silliness, but oftentimes there's bigger issues at stake that we fight over things way bigger than that. And we fight over difficult things. And so we're bringing in cultural ideas and politics and, 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 and sports teams. And we're not gonna fight over those, are we? Not today, that's later this season. We'll get there eventually. But there's other things that, that we can get spun out about as a church. And what Timothy, Paul's telling Timothy is, man, there's people here that are pushing pressures on you and cultural ideas on you. It says they pretend to know the law and they're confident about their assertions, but they don't really know anything at all. And they're creating all this division and dissension. And so there's pressures from within the church that are causing tension for Timothy. But there's also pressures from without. There's false ideologies that take place that Timothy's gonna have to wrestle with. In fact, I want us to go back and look at uh, Acts chapter 19 for just a minute. And in Acts 19, we're gonna see really the beginning of, or one of the, the big episodes that take place. And this was uh, Paul in Ephesus, the same city where Timothy is now a pastor. And in the middle of this, uh, this city of Ephesus, uh, there, it's really a kind of a multicultural, um, very wealthy, um, very prosperous sort of a city. It's a big city. And uh, a city where there's one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple to the goddess Artemis, and she's worshiped there. And in fact, there, it's such a big thing in that region, in that area, that they actually would close down the city basically for, or, or work for a month and just have a month-long celebration where they would go to the theater, they do live music, they'd have sporting events, they'd have festivals, they'd have worship, they'd do all this kind of stuff at the temple, and they'd invite people from all around the region would come in to worship there. And so this was a huge cash cow. They made a killing as a tourist hub because of this month-long celebration that took place there. And so now all of a sudden, insert Paul, insert 
the gospel. Insert Jesus and begin to see that this conflict arises between the worship of this goddess Artemis and this entire culture and business and, uh, and experience and, and party and celebration that, built, that was built around this one false worship. And now all of a sudden, what is going to happen whenever you see the conflict that begins there? Acts 19, verse 23. It says, And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And don't you love how understated that is? About the time there was no little disturbance. Um, some of you parents know what no little disturbances are like in the, in the house when your kids do that. And it's not fun, right? Like it shuts down, stop everything. You guys knock it off if you got to do that. Uh, this is going to be even bigger than hopefully what your kids are doing. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not really gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians who were, tra- who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had even come together." So you've got this confusion that's taken place and this disruption. What was the heart of the disruption that took place? These guys were afraid that their way of life was going to be altered. That Christianity moving into this city was gonna alter and affect the way in which they had grown comfortable living. Do you see how Christianity was a disruptor in that world? And so they were afraid. And so this guy begins to stir the pot and says, hey, we are getting rich off of this and we have a very comfortable way of life and we enjoy the way of life we're living. Thank you very much. Please don't disrupt us at all. Um, do, you ever, do you hear an echo of that in our world at all? People that look and they just say, you know what? I feel like I'm doing pretty good. I like the world the way it is. I like my life the way it is. I like things the way they are. And the gospel steps into a city even like ours we may not have the seven wonders of the world here in Edmond, Oklahoma. We may not have a lot of Artemis worship here in Edmond, Oklahoma, but we have comfortable, good lives that sometimes the gospel disrupts and breaks up and pushes in upon us. Now, I think it's important for you and me to recognize that at least to some extent, I mean, we're all products of our city and our culture, right? Like we live here, we breathe here, we, we know the air and, and the culture and the things that are accepted and the way of life that's here. And a lot of that rubs off on us. And so we're not entirely isolated or separate. In fact, we're very much a part of those things and they're very much a part of us. And somehow one of the things you see is that we're not immune to the, the push and the pull of our world. Those ideas 
creep in upon us. And so Christians all the time are getting wrong-headed ideas and, and they're getting distracted by, from the truth. And part of our growing towards maturity as Christians is to grow in the way of Jesus and learn a new way, to really learn how to put on the truth that he brings us and understand what it is to live in light of that. In fact, scripture teaches us in 1 Timothy, it says this, it says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. See, when you become a Christian, you kind of transfer your, 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 your family allegiance into this new family called the church. And he uses this language. It says, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a new, a new community of faith that we, you need to understand that you've been called out of something into something new, out of darkness into light. So there's a transition. And when we become a Christian, what's, what we understand from the scriptures is that things are supposed to change. That somehow our lives begin to change and we see ourselves differently. But whenever, we, whenever that change begins to take place, and we still live within the city and the community and the culture in which we've grown up. And what, what happens is there becomes some tensions internally in us where you start to go, huh, I don't know if that's the way of Jesus or if that's the way of Edmund. I don't know if that's the way of Jesus or if that's the way of America. I don't know if that's the way of Jesus or that's the way of just what I've been used to. And so there's internal in your own heart, some tensions that arise. There's also some external pressures that you look at and you begin to have some conflict or tension with those around you where you look and you go, well, I know that's not the way of Jesus. And so what, what do we do in those places and what, how do we figure out how to live? I think that's one of the themes that we're gonna see as we get into 1 Timothy. But it's interesting because Paul, as he talks about this, one of the things we see is that the church uh, the church is, is kind of this genius invention of, uh, of our creator that has this kind of structure and, uh, and, and, and form to it um, and kind of a, st a strength and a framework of how to operate. But there's also this real flexible and loving kind of a thing that comes with it. And so in every generation and every uh, we, the, the church really is called to deal with the difficulties and the challenges of the day. But one of the things we see here is that Paul talks all, often about the truth. He talks about the, uh, the good doctrine. He talks about the faith. He talks about the gospel. And there's this kind of objective nature of there's some truth that we are to believe that is unchanging, that isn't wavering, that doesn't, isn't fickle, that doesn't flip-flop with the wind, but it's something that we are supposed to understand and to believe. And so let me ask you this. Why is the, the beauty of the church and the benefit of the church so difficult for us in our day to really see and appreciate? Uh, because as you look in our world, you hear these things all the time that say, and I, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I like to be a part of people who are people of faith, but I don't really want anything. I'm gonna kind of keep the church at arm's distance. And that's kind of just an accepted idea in our culture, isn't it? That if you go talk to people, that's kind of the, the buzzword. That's kind of the feel that you get. Why is that so hard in our world? Well, I think there's some cultural reasons. And I want us to step back a little bit and kind of look at a bird's eye view and go kind of 30,000 feet for just a little bit. 
Um, if you were to worship in the church today, it'd be very different than worshiping in the church 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago. And part of that is because our culture has shifted. There's been this radical change that's taken place within Western culture. And part of that takes place, any of you know Rene Descartes? Famously said what? Some of you guys got to take an ACT or SAT sometime. <laughs> Students, where are you? What did, what did he say? I think, therefore I am. And that began a shift that was kind of a seismic shift in the West. And, and really, before that time, people assumed that they were a part of kind of a larger scope, that somehow there was, there was a divine creator, there was an order to the universe, that even if God was sort of distant, that he had set everything in motion and everything was meant to be ordered under that. And so there were institutions like the church and the king and the caste system, and there were classes and there were, and typically you, if, if you worked for, uh, in a certain trade, you'd work within a family and then that trade would be passed down to your kids, which would be passed down to their kids, which would be passed down to their kids. And there's kind of this set way of the universe and everyone accepted that that's the way it was. There's, there's government, there's church, there's these other institutions that are there. And when Descartes said this, he says, I think therefore I am, he transitioned that from this external authority that everything was built on these external authorities and he put the, the authority within you that you exist and you have authority and you have a truth within yourself. And so that began this kind of shift within society that focused on the individual rather than on this kind of corporate structure. And so as you think about that, one, uh, one guy was, uh, said it this way, along with that comes skepticism and criticism of the foundational informative institutions of society, the church, the state, and traditions. It is not that people abandon these authorities, but they no longer assume that these forces are valid and correct. This didn't happen overnight, but over the last 400 years, Western cultures experienced a profound shift that happened through the Enlightenment, through the Reformation, and through that shift, we just began a different approach to life and a different way of seeing the world. And in that, um, we began to order our lives in different ways. Philosopher Charles Taylor says it this way, this is for many people today to set aside my own path in order to conform to some external authority doesn't seem comprehensible as a form of the spiritual life. What's the point of that? That instead of the church saying, here's what is truth, instead of us accepting that the word of God is truth, instead of us believing these things and sort of taking them on fact, we began to distance ourselves and feel skeptical for those because that was outside of me. So we began to distrust authorities. We began to distrust the states. We kind of looked and began to say, you know what? Some kings are good, but most of them are kind of jerks. And they seem to be taking advantage of us. And they seem to be raising my taxes when they want to build the new house. And we started to see these things that were flaws in the system of traditions and of the church. And we saw, we saw the church that oftentimes dropped the ball and did evil things. And we saw bad things that happened through institutions. So we said, you know what? I don't think I want to trust the institution. I want to trust myself more. And it started out with thinking, but it began to become this kind of self-focused thing over the last 400 years and became more and more intensely focused upon individuals. But here's what happens when the gospel comes. Jesus says, to find your life, you must what? Lose it. That if you're fixated on self and all of your authority and all of your value and all of your significance is fixated on self, it, Jesus begins to push on that from the very get-go and begins to push back. 
Um, Alan Noble writes this. He says, the gospel is cognitively costly. It upsets our innate in our innate and cultivated assumptions about power and guilt and existential validation. It presses down on our values and hopes. It decenters our perception of the world. Life ceases to be our story and is revealed to be the redemptive story of glory and of love. It convicts us of our sins and reveals our disordered desires and reforms them into Christ's image. That's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It begins to disrupt those things. And so the the values that you had that were built on self, the approach to life, the viewpoint, all those things, the gospel comes in and says, hey, let me disrupt that a little bit. Let's unsettle that so that you can learn a new way. In fact, when you get to the gospel, or to uh, the book of Acts, one of the things you see is that the, the early Christians just called themselves the way. What do they mean by the way? It was just, it's the way of Jesus. Meaning I, I'm no longer going in my way, but I'm trying to learn a new way. I'm learning a new way of living and I'm gonna trust that Jesus' way is better than my way. But it's tough because that's derived from outside of yourself. So instead of everything being fixated on you, it's fixated on Jesus. And instead of it being your way, you're learning Jesus' way. And instead of you being able to save yourself, you're being saved through Jesus' sacrifice. And instead of you determining what is best, you really lean and trust on him. And so rather than self-affirming, Jesus says, what? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And do you feel how that cuts into some of the self-focused way in which we do things? Now, here's what I realize for us is that in, in our day, the broader religious scene oftentimes just feels like church chaos, right? I mean, you want to do a wedding? You can go out and sign up and be a priest online and go do a wedding. You want to start a church? Like, just go sign up, print a little something out on paper and Go put, a sh- go put a shingle out and you start a church. There's not really any institutional thing. And so it feels like chaos. Sometimes it feels like a world's kind of firmly planted in midair, you know, with, with no grounding or nothing to stand on. And yet what we see in First Timothy is that God had a plan that's much better than that. And he's given us instructions and strong guidance for what it is to do. In fact, it's important that these letters, uh, three letters that are in the, in the, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called pastoral epistles. And they're letters from the Apostle Paul to the next generation of guys that were put in charge of those churches. And they were charged to guard the truth so that it might be passed down and appointed to someone else and appointed to someone else so that eventually the truth might come to us. That was God's plan. And he's given us instructions for how to do that. We just oftentimes ignore them. So let me ask you this, what's the way forward? What's the way forward for us? Back in 1 Timothy You see verse five, Paul gives a theme here. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love. The the goal, the thing that we're fixated on, he says, is that we're to be people that are marked by love. And it's love that that, that flows out of something. It's not love that's just kind of, empty and and shallow, but it flows out of a deep reservoir that's there. It says love that flows out of a pure heart. It means a real desire for God that's flowing out of a sincere place of uh, of hunger and thirst for for God and for his righteousness. Christ said that blessed are the pure of heart for they will see God. So it's, it's born out of a desire to see God for who he really is. And it's a good conscience. 
When you have a good conscience, when your life lines up with what you believe, right? When you're actually walking the walk. And it's not talking about someone who's perfect here, but it's someone who's, man, they've confessed their sin. You know, they've, they're, they're not hiding something. They're not holding out, but they've, they've been honest about their struggle and their sin and they've trusted the grace of Christ and they've committed themselves to seek the Lord and to try to walk in, in light of the gospel and in line with the gospel. And, and so they're, they're doing what they can to truly, truly be faithful to Jesus. And then you notice it says a sincere faith. Sincere faith just means that there's no hypocrisy. That there's a sincerity to your belief in what you're trying to do. So that's how we contradict a world that oftentimes goes awry and a world that oftentimes feels like chaos that's filled with confusion. Go back to Acts 19, what happened? When that disruption of the gospel came and those guys that, that, uh, that they thought, man, our way of life is gonna be disrupted by this. It ended, it twice just says, and there was total confusion and people didn't even know why they were there. Friends, we don't have to be people of confusion. We can be people who have a sincere faith. And Paul is going to continue to come back to this and remind us of this. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, he says this. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He gave himself as a ransom for all. There's one God. There's one way to him. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is a mediator that's made a way for us to be connected to him. And so Paul is going to come back to that over and over and over through this book. And next week, I want to walk through some other aspects of that. But here's what I want you to know today. Christ has made a way for you to be connected to the God of the universe. There are crazy ideas in our world about what divinity looks like, about what spirituality looks like, about what true religion looks like. But there's one God and one mediator Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, Paul writes elsewhere in this letter, uh, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul added a note and said, of whom I'm the foremost. Friends, we all come as sinners. Paul the apostle said, hey, I'm the foremost of sinners. All of us come in this room and we bring our own baggage, we bring our own junk, we bring all the stuff that we've done and all the places we've been, all the things we've seen, all the thoughts that we've had, all the anger and hatred that sometimes rises up in our hearts. And we bring all those things into this room. And I want you to know, you are welcome to bring it into this room because Christ has come. Christ has died to pay the price for your sins. He substituted himself and said, I will make a way for you that is sure, that is true, that is not up for grabs, but that you can trust with all of your life and it's unwavering. And it was true 2,000 years ago. It was true 1,000 years ago. It's true today. It'll be true 1,000 years and 1,000 years and 1,000 years in the future. Christ made a way for you. He died, shed his blood for you, rose again to be victorious so that you would have no doubts about his love for you and promises that he will return and he'll take you home so we can be with him forever. And then, in that time, there will be no speculation. There will be no doubts. There will be no concerns or ups and downs. There will be no lack of courage because for then we will see him face to face and we will know with absolute certainty that he is good. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you that even in the 
places of conflict in our world, the places where we feel the tensions, places where we feel, uh, where we feel timid like Timothy felt timid. Father, would you give us courage? Would you give us strength to trust? Father, that we might not listen to any other doctrine, but we would know beyond any doubt that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and that he gave himself as a ransom to pay the full price for our rescue and our salvation. Father, it's in his name we pray. Amen.